We're back. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of SLP's Wine and Cheese. I'm Maria. I'm Deb. And here's our podcast. I think it's for the realistic SLP. Definitely, if you're realistic, listen to us. Mm-hmm. So it's no surprise that we are drinking our lovely bitch wine. It's no surprise that Maria said it was lovely. <laughs> yes, well, it is lovely. Mm-hmm. And we're going to keep on drinking it. Because, yeah. again, we have a lot of extra from our live show, which yes. was awesome. Just a little uh, reminder of how great that was. Also, Creek in the Cave asked us back. So we're, we are considering a September date. Uh, write to us to let us know if you're interested in that. Yes, yes. And it'll be in Long Island City, which is Queens. Not Long Island like I thought. No, it's yes. Queens. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. learned that the hard way. Anyway, so this wine comes from the Grenache grape. Mm-hmm. And it's from Spain. So actually the Grenache grape has grows in different regions and each region will have a different taste so oh. i we have the calatayud which is in spain so this grape i'll have you know mm-hmm. as per winefolly.com is uh the calatayud is a warmer growing region in northern spain where late ripening garanache grapes can get very high sugar levels so that's a little different type of grape, I guess. So it makes it sweeter, the yes. wine? Yes. Yeah. The ripe grape usually ferment to alcohol levels above 15%, which right. adds both body and spice. Because yeast eats sugar and that creates alcohol. That's what fermentation is. That's when you learned that at the Rosé Mansion. Sure did. Great. So obviously we vote drink, drink it. it. Yes. So I'm excited to keep drinking this wine. Um, yes. What about you? What's going on? Let's talk about this week in life and this week in speech. How is your life going, Deb? My life is going really well. My birthday is on Friday. Yes. I had a wonderful 4th of July yes. party. Um, Mike and I did a good job in our backyard. It looks fantastic. Of course. Our floors are done. So my life is more together. We have not really unpacked. Which just shows you how much stuff you don't need. Yes, for sure. Yeah. And then this week I started summer services. And today I met my full and did my first full day. So I met the majority of my caseload today for the rest of the summer. And um, yeah, it was interesting. Great. I think by the time the audience members hear this i'll be in greece right somewhere on a beach but right now currently today's july 9th right today's july for us for us in this present moment yeah so you guys welcome to the past yes um we're happy here things are going well um and uh our advice to you in the future is to save your money is it like, I was well gonna, i don't know that was, yeah, well that's your advice <laughs> i just came up with that yeah i like that advice for mm-hmm. you so maybe someone's listening to this and like about to spend a bunch of money and now right. you're stopping them yeah just consider if your house was all packed up in boxes still is this a box you'd be looking for wow every time you buy something yeah i feel like 90 percent of the time we would say no Right. And I'm just going to not take those things out of the boxes. And then I'm just going to like make a decision about those boxes. Good. I'm going to see how long I can last without going crazy, without like totally unpacking and then trying to purge once more. Gotcha. Well, that's really nice. Yeah. I feel I feel like that's very cathartic. Cathartic. Yeah. You know, like just get rid of stuff you don't need. Right. Because I don't 
you don't have to care that much about the things that you have. Truth. Yeah, yes. like you can just get rid of it. You you have your memory there. It's That's in your head. You don't need a thing to take up space to represent that. Or some memories you need to let go of. Right. Like I don't really want to remember middle school and high school that much. Like I think I'm past it. I'm in my 30s now. Yeah. But I did keep a whole like file folder of pictures and I'm thinking, like, I'm not even going to look at those. I should throw them out. Really? Pictures? But oh. in my future for my biography, I'll probably need pictures from that period in my life. So why don't you just get I'll a photo them. album and organize them a little neater or nicer? Yeah, because uh, sometimes you don't really want to spend time in the past. Right. True. So you're just like, I'll keep it in this folder. <laughs> so what have you <laughs> learned? to look at all these pictures. What have you learned since high school? That... Um, Feelings aren't facts. Yes. Good one. Mm -hmm. That's so true. I like that one. I also learned uh, from high school that low rise jeans are not that form that are not that. Oh, they're so bad. Yeah. It's like maybe I don't really have a muffin top at all times. Maybe it's just the jeans fault. Right. And also your underwear always hangs out. It's like, why wear them? Yes. Yeah. It's so annoying. Those are totally out. Levi's are the best. Levi's are pretty good. I like Levi's. They're like Levi's are my most favorite jean. And my second favorite jean is J. Crew. Oh, I don't. I like American Eagle. I need some stretch. Oh, I don't like American Eagle. All right. We can agree. They're a little bit too low for me, too. They are a little. Actually, no, they have like the sky high ones. Well, I haven't had the sky high. Jeez Louise. I need sky (laughs) high, the long torso. (laughs) But I'm also interested in this book right now. Mm -hmm. What is it? You're interested. Is that what's going on in your life? Yes, this is what's going on in my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Beep. Beep. F U C. (laughs) (laughs) so i was like is she gonna keep going yeah i'm not gonna because i mean i already said like bitch wine like a hundred times yeah so i'm like not gonna i'm gonna have to start clicking that explicit button on these podcasts before i upload them i feel like no i want us to be like virginal you know virginal i don't know you're not really finding virtue in the things you're saying today you're either like excessive or deficient okay you need to find the middle ground the middle ground between okay. excessiveness and deficiency. Okay. I will work on that. Yeah. Just the middle. So my book that I wanted to talk about this specific chapter in this book, and it's called you're wrong about everything, but so am I. And just to wrap it up, all the things that he says, this author, I'll give his name, Mark Manson. I really liked a lot of the stuff he talked about and I was thinking we could talk about it. So okay. one good point, which I liked, he said, growth is an endlessly iterative process. And what does that word even mean? I had to look up that word. Yeah, I was about to ask you. I don't know yeah. that word. Oh, let me make sure I'm saying Why it is this right guy way. using words that no one knows? Iterative. It's an iterative process. An iterative? Iter- yes. Inter- so narrative kind of, but it's internal? Um, Not, well, maybe a little bit, actually. <laughs> that was good. What is it? Okay. Iteration is the repetition. Oh, to iterate, like reiterate. Kind of, yes, especially in a mathematical way. But yes, Mm -hmm. in linguistics, it's denoting a grammatical rule that can be applied repeatedly. But really, it just means, I'll tell you, is the repetition of a process in order to generate a sequence of outcomes. 
So really just to not get like so technical and fancy, it just means that you're constantly growing and it's an ongoing process. So mm-hmm. it's not like, oh, once I graduate with my master's degree in speech, bless you, I know everything. Like you're right. always going to keep learning as a professional, yeah. as an individual, as a parent, as, um, you know, whatever, as a teacher. Whoever you are. Whoever you are. So I think that's so important to have that mindset. Like I'm always going to keep learning and I don't know everything about everything. Right. And if you think that you do, then you're crazy because we don't even know everything about the ocean yeah so even one time in life we thought the earth was flat right and we thought the sun revolved around the earth so there's a lot of crazy thoughts that we had and now we're learning otherwise right and researchers don't even know everything research don't even know so it's about how we shouldn't seek to find the right answer for ourselves but to seek to chip away ways where wrong today to be a little less wrong tomorrow right <laughs> yeah true nobi- nobility is being superior to your former self i think that's from a movie i felt like that was like shakespeare or something crazy oh uh, like it's like from the kingsman I oh the kingsman movies yeah okay He's like, there's nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. True superior, true nobility is being superior to your former self. So you don't have to keep repeating what you've done and who you've been. Instead, you should break that pattern and grow into something else. Is that what he's trying to say? I mean, you could interpret it that way. I interpret it as instead of like comparing yourself to others, just compare yourself to like your past self and how you're going to keep growing. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So like what you did yesterday, how you're going to make that a little bit better today. Right. And that's how he talks about like you're always wrong. So instead of always seeking to believe like I'm right, I'm doing the right thing, always kind of look at something from like a sense of like doubt. Am I doing this the right way? Am I sticking to my morals? Am I what is really truly motivating me as opposed to like I'm right about this? You know, right, so yeah. think about where you're coming from, your intentions. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which I feel like is such just gr- bleh, such great advice. Yes. And also uh, in the bo- this chapter talks about how um, we shouldn't just always aim for perfection because we'll never always get there. It's like so we're aiming for perfection, but we'll never actually get there. So it's right. almost like you're running a, a race that will never really be over. Right. Yeah. But I feel like that's making it sound negative. It means it. He means it more in a positive sense. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed this book. And I feel like it's important to talk about growing as professionals, as SLPs, because we're constantly growing. Right. You know, like um, do, we're always going to have a client that's different from the next and family dynamics are always going to change and even we are going to change. So just to always like come from that mindset. Right. That like nothing will stay the same forever. Yes. Things are always changing. So like you need to be adaptable and progressive and proactive and looking towards the future instead of just being stuck in the past and repeating yes. old patterns. Right. And being like, I'm right about this. this right. Is the yeah. Right way. And that's not really. Right. Don't be afraid to be wrong. Don't be afraid to be wrong. I need to work on that. When I was reading this chapter, it like resonated with me. I feel like I'm always trying to be like doing. I'm always trying to do the right thing. But there really isn't always a quote unquote right thing. Right. Because you might think something's right. But really 
it's not or maybe it's a better learning opportunity if you are quote unquote wrong right absolutely all relative terms here yeah so yeah that's what i wanted to talk about with that and uh let's cut to a short commercial break This episode is brought to you by Covalent Careers, a career development company for new healthcare professionals. Covalent Careers provides new grads with education, mentorship, and job opportunities, and provides employers with scalable talent acquisition solutions. Whether you're looking for a job, clinical tips, or advice on interviewing as a new grad, SLPs can find resources and job postings at www.covalentcareers.com backslash wine and cheese this episode is also brought to you by fusion web clinic fusion web clinic is an all-in-one practice management software designed specifically for pediatric speech therapists physical therapists and occupational therapists who need to save time and streamline their practice with unlimited customer support free onboarding and an ever-growing set of features thousands of therapists across the country use fusion every day to treat their kiddos To learn more and check out Fusion's library of free resources, visit them online at www.fusionwebclinic.com backslash cheese. And if you sign up for a free demo of the software, mention the SLP's Wine and Cheese podcast to receive a $50 credit off your first month of Fusion. This episode is also, also brought to you by ThroatScope. ThroatScope is an illuminated tongue depressor and retraction tool. Yes, ThroatScope includes a reusable light handle that slides onto a single-use tongue depressor. ThroatScope integrates a natural light source to provide complete intraoral illumination for improved patient examination and outcomes. Yeah, and ThroatScope provides patient compliance, versatility, and flexibility to complete a thorough intraoral examination. So if you want to feel like a prepared SLP, please visit ThroatScope.com. Yeah, do it. I love my ThroatScope. segment of Dev Talks, we are chatting with Meredith of the Informed SLP. Hi, Meredith. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. Of course. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. So can you tell us a a little bit of your background? Yeah, sure. So um, I have kind of an atypical background because I actually was trained as a scientist and got my PhD before I ever started working as an SLP. So I was one of those like nerds that you probably remember from like your graduate or undergraduate cohort who was working in research labs all the time and reading journal articles and super like, um, you know, brown nosing the scientists and stuff because I wanted to be in their labs doing (laughs) their lab work. And so I actually spent a ton of time doing science as an undergrad and went from my undergrad straight into my PhD. So I had planned on being a scientist forever. Like I really hadn't had a plan to be an SLP. But um, after 10 years in school, because I went to the University of Kansas in 01, and then by the time I was done with my PhD, it was 2011. After 10 years in school and having the goal of developing assessment and treatment techniques that were supposed to help SLPs, I started to have this weird like moment where I was like, what am I doing? Like, I have no idea what it's like to be an SLP. 
And I also was feeling kind of exhausted and unsure about whether or not I wanted to stay on the science hamster wheel. And so much to the dismay of some of my advisors, I jumped ship and decided to write after my PhD, um, become an SLP. So I got a school SLP job and I did it at the time, not knowing how long I was going to stay. I mostly just wanted to like get that experience, see what it was like and use it as like a break before maybe I went back to science or whatever. Um, I ended up working as an SLP for over five years though, before I returned to academia. Um, And it was a very weird process to go from being a PhD to being a school-based SLP. And it was hard. Like it was a lot harder than I expected it to be. And it surprised me in um, a lot of ways that um, I think kind of affect me to this day. So anyhow, so after after I worked for five years being a school-based SLP, um, I one day just kind of had this moment where I was like, you know what? Like I have this really unique background where I understand how to read and digest science, but I also understand now what it's like to be a clinician. Like, I feel like I am an SLP. Like, I'm not just a scientist who took an SLP job for a year or two. Like, I am an SLP now, you know? And so I was like, maybe I should start teaching clinicians about what parts of our research would help them practice better, you know? Because I finally was at that point where I felt like I kind of understood where the you know two practices kind of overlap and help each other and so i started basically like blogging on science um which slowly morphed into the informed slp which is basically like you can kind of think of it like a monthly newsletter about our fields research um and now i actually do that full time so um as of this summer, all I do is the informed SLP, and I work with a team of other scientists, so other PhDs, and a whole bunch of other clinicians. And we basically, like, our entire job is to help to bridge the gap between science and practice. So, wow. Well, that's a, definitely necessary. Yeah, yeah. So I've had a weird career trajectory, to say the least. Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, I feel like lots of people, they have, they all take their own route. Um, and mm-hmm. I do appreciate that you uh, took the time to be an SLP for such a long time, because often the research kind of happens in a vacuum or in a situation that's difficult to translate over to actually the speech therapy session. Yeah, yeah. And something that I found really frustrating when I was working as a clinician is, you know, I would get a client on my caseload, like a preschooler who stutters or something, and I'd be like, like I'm winging it with these fluency kids, and maybe I should try to kind of figure out what I should be doing. And so I knew how to search PubMed, like I knew how to found, find research quickly. So I'd go and I'd find a whole bunch of, you know, articles that seemed like they would help when I would look at the title and look at the abstract and I would print them and I'd have a stack of like, you know, 12 journal articles. Then over lunch, I would sit and eat and like sift through them at the same time because I could go through them pretty quickly. And then a lot of times after an hour, I would realize that I had nothing that like what I just read in no way was actually going to help me with the client I was about to see. And that's what got really frustrating to me when I started to realize that most of the research that's published every month actually isn't clinically applicable yet. And it can seem like it is on the surface, but until you actually dig into it, and unless you know 
how most clinicians are operating and how, you know, what most clients are kind of like, what sort of problem problems they're presenting with. Um, it's yeah, it's just not. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's how I feel the majority of my experience in terms of research has been. Oh, you know what we didn't do? We didn't talk about what we're drinking. Oh yeah. Yeah. So Meredith, what do you have on this very special edition of SLP's wine and cheese? We're doing yeah. things a little bit different. <laughs> so rewind back to the most important part. So um, I am kind of a rule breaker by nature. I like to just do what I want to do. So you told me I could bring wine, but I didn't follow the rules. I brought kombucha and tequila instead. <laughs> so this is um, kombucha and tequila with notes of basil and strawberry and lemon. It's fantastic. Well, that sounds fantastic. And then I followed your lead and I'm having sparkling lemonade with tequila, which kind of tastes like a fizzy margarita. Yeah. I love it. What kind of tequila do you drink? Or are you just kind of partial to whatever happens to be on sale? Yeah, I definitely bought what was on sale and it was from Cinco de Mayo and it was just still in my freezer. But <laughs> I like the Milagro tequila. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I won that in a contest when I was a waitress, and I wasn't even 21 yet, so. Fabulous. <laughs> we all, uh, we, all the waitstaff competed to see who could sell the most shots. Uh -huh. I was like, oh, I've got this. And then they had to give me the bottle, even though, I mean, I guess they really didn't have to, but they still did. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, rule breaking all around. Um, <laughs> today, we're going to talk a bit about being a SLP versus a scientist. Yeah. And later, towards the end of our interview, I'd like to ask you, because I think that we all are rule breakers in a sense, and there are certainly things that I do in my speech therapy sessions that everyone is, a lot of opinions are towards the, no, don't ever do that. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you your opinion on the things that I break the rules about. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So what do you think is the main difference between being an SLP and a scientist? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing that's not recognized by either clinicians or researchers, unless you've had a little bit of a peek into one of those worlds, is the fact that most clinicians are generalists, right? Most clinicians need to understand speech sound disorders and language disorders and autism and cerebral palsy and down syndrome and you know social pragmatic stuff and like the list goes on and on and on um mm -hmm. and you know understanding the research behind just one of those topics like understanding behind the research behind aac alone is massively huge right where scientists are specialists so most scientists don't know about all those things. They know about one or two or maybe three of those things, and they deeply understand the evidence behind those little things. Uh, or not little things, but they end up being very big topics because they take up your whole career really digging deep into those um, topics. And so I think the way this ends up playing out with like misconceptions is scientists, I think, tend to forget how much SLPs are responsible for knowing. Like scientists will be like, oh, why don't you just understand the research behind how to treat language disorders? Like, I understand the research behind how to treat language disorders. Why don't you? I think they forget the sheer volume of information clinicians would have to be responsible for in order to truly understand the evidence base behind all those topics, which is a bit unfair. And then the way clinicians tend to misunderstand it is a lot of times they think that PhDs 
like know all the research, right? So pe people will come to me and they'll ask me about the research behind a specific topic as though I'm like an encyclopedia. But I'm not an encyclopedia. <laughs> I don't even kind of sort of know everything about the only thing I can offer is that I know a lot about a few little topics and then I can look up things really fast just right. because I practice at it. So like when I, so when I was working as a school-based SLP um, and before like people knew me very well, I remember having a lot of experiences at like the staff meetings where my colleagues who were SLPs who had been working for, you know, like three years or five years or 15 years, um, when they first met me as a PhD, they thought that I was going to come in there knowing everything, but they were often surprised by like how much I knew about certain topics. And then the fact that I knew nothing about other topics, like literally nothing, you know? Um, so I would say that that's like the biggest difference that causes just kind of like miscommunication and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. Cause you can't know everything and um, it sometimes feels like you have to. And sometimes I think as an SLP, you like put too much pressure and guilt on yourself thinking yeah. oh, I should have known that or, or I'm so, such a bad SLP for having done that thing that everyone knows you shouldn't do or something along the lines of that. It's a lot of information to be responsible for. Like, a lot. <laughs> right. You feel like so, um, for the most part, to sum up what the informed SLP does, you basically, you provide summaries and uh, like kind of bullet points and ways in which this research can be applicable to the speech therapy session, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So remember how I said earlier that like most of the research that's published every month looks on its surface like it would be useful to SLPs, but once you read it, you realize it might not be. That's part of the problem we solve. The other problem we solve is like, remember when I said a few minutes ago about how I would like print 10 journal articles, sit down, go through them all and be like, dang it, like where's the stuff that I can use? Like where's the useful information? We basically scour all the literature every single month, doing deep dives into databases and all the journals, looking for those things that are useful. So what we publish each month actually isn't that much information. Like you can read it in like 15 to 30 minutes, but wow. it is literally all of the clinically useful bits that we could find that were published that month. Right. So it just encompasses all of that. Yeah. So rather than telling you about all the things, we tell you about the things that you can use right away, which substantially reduces the time barrier. Yeah. That just seems like a win-win. Yeah. It's, it's funny. This lovely service. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and we, you know, all of us that work at the informed SLP, um, we all are like the type of people who like reading journal articles, but we all like, I also am really, uh, it's really important to me that I hire people that understand what it's like to be a clinician. Um, because it's really like that place where those two, you know, pieces come together where we are able to find really useful stuff for clinicians. So. Right. And that's what it comes down to. That's what we're all trying to do. I feel like being an SLP in and out of itself, is just a very isolating field because lots of times I'm the only SLP I've ever really worked with, except for my CF year, I worked in a private practice and there was a, a clinician next door to me. Mm -hmm. And now this year I'm moving to a school and I actually will have another SLP with me on site. But for my seven years, six of them, I've really just been on my own. And um, that's why I really started my Instagram doing videos of myself doing speech therapy because 
I just thought there was so much complaining on the internet about like lack of ideas and struggle to get things done. And I never felt that. I mean, I feel other pains like session notes and paperwork, but not, not interacting with clients. Mm -hmm. So I feel like although being a speech pathologist is a great field and such a great um, type of therapy to offer people, it's just there are lots of kinks in the system. And I thank you for trying to straighten out some of this. Yeah. Well, thank you for being one of the first people to post therapy videos online. I followed you for a long time. And that's one of the things that very first stood out is like you were one of the only people who was actually showing what therapy looked like, which a lot of us didn't even get that, that much in grad school, right? Like how often do you, and and even still to this day, the majority of information that's out there for SLPs isn't those kind of like high quality videos where you get snippets of what it looks like to do the therapy. It tends to be more like printable things and like directions for how to do things and stuff like that, which is good, but yeah, good for you for being brave enough to just be like, you know what, I'm just going to video it because I know that that's what people want. And so let's just get it done. (laughs) Yeah, that's how I felt. And I also like, although I do sell products, I never wanted anyone to think that my Instagram was one giant ad. Like you can draw what I'm drawing. You can copy it. I don't care. I can't stop you from making circles on a page. But if you want to buy my stuff, thank you. I appreciate it. It's been quite helpful to me (laughs) that people buy materials from me. But I think it's just so much better to show the how rather than to like just feature products. Yeah. Oh, totally. Oh, totally. Yeah. People have asked us for that before actually through the informed SLP. Like they, like I, like I keep, I have a running list of all the things that people are like, wouldn't it be nice if you'd do this for us? Wouldn't it be nice if you'd do that for us? And one of them is videos. Um, and yeah. That's a, that would be a really huge thing, though, to try to, like, reenact what the therapy looks like for some of these art research articles. But I've spent a lot of time trying to talk scientists into doing that, right? So, like, scientists publish these papers where it's like, oh, like, here's the therapy protocol. Let me describe it in, like, six paragraphs, when in reality, they could just get permission from some of the kids participating in their study, video it, and throw it up on their lab website. So right. to any scientist listening, put videos up on your lab's website. In fact, most of them already have videos of all of their data because right. they want to video it so that they can like code it later and do further analyses of it later. So those videos are just sitting like on the computer somewhere. Yeah. And I feel like whenever I take any type of professional development or CEU course, there's always videos. I'm just like, why doesn't, why aren't these all over Instagram? Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. If you ever wanted to merge, if you were ever like, this is what this research article is uh, saying should be done. So if you have anybody who is working on this technique, try doing X, Y, and Z, and I'll do it and I'll send you a video. So um, maybe we can do that. Plus, Deb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I'm so I would be totally into that, especially since cool. now. I'd like to talk to you about all of the rules that I break and the things that I think that I do wrong, but I actually like to do in therapy. Um, The first one is a major one that I do constantly. And um, I do articulation therapy and I associate the sounds with the letters, which I feel like um, in grad school and also sometimes I get, I used to get direct messages about it, not so much anymore. But um, there are lots of approaches to articulation and phonology type therapy sessions. 
saying like, forget the letter, don't use the letter, just to focus on the sound. Are you familiar with this theory? So I can't think of a reason why it would be bad. So mm -hmm. you're like working on R and you're also making sure to show them what R looks like and show right. it to, uh, yeah, I can't think of a reason why you shouldn't be doing that. Right, and that's how I feel as well. And I don't understand the reason <laughs> behind not associating the letter because I feel as though neurons that fire together wire together. So, yeah. you know, yeah. trying to show like R as in rat, here's a rat, here's the letter R, this is what R, R sounds like. So, yeah. All right, so that one's good. Cross it off. I have your <laughs> side note. Next time somebody sends you a journal article and you're like, wait, does this pr disprove what I'm doing? DM it to me. <laughs> okay. It's never a journal article. It's always my professor told me not to do that. Oh, well, yeah, out of context, that can get way twisted. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next one is oral motor therapy. Um, yes. There are strategies that I like to do. For instance, I like to practice the posture of sounds, especially if I'm working on recently, if I'm working on W with a child. Mm -hmm. And I always have to first, we just, I always have to show him the wah mouth mm -hmm. posture. And mm -hmm. if I don't give him that visual model, he often produces it as la. So way is lay. And so I have found it helpful to just go from wa-la, wa-la. So I am doing exercises with the sound. But then in addition to that, I do like to use chewy tubes and I do like to use tongue depressors for um, lateralization and then also strength against resistance. And um, sometimes I post about that and people write to me saying that oral motor therapy is useless and yeah feel there. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a whole can of worms. Yeah. <laughs> but like, so several of the things that you said are correct and several of them could be pointless depending on exactly how you do it. So mm -hmm. first of all, like getting the articulators in the right place in order to work on a speech sound is completely evidence-based. Right. Like oftentimes there obviously is like a phase where you're using tongue depressors and helping push the child's mouth into the right position, using tactile cues, using your hands, using mirrors and working on just getting your mouth in the right position. Right. And so technically that does like, that can look like non-speech because you've yet to add vocalization to it, but there is absolutely, like that has to happen. That has to happen for a lot of kids. I'm like, wake up, this is what we're doing. Like, so yeah. this one tip needs, it probably never felt this sensation before. And I'm just trying yeah. to like increase that sensory input to trigger a motor response. Yeah, yeah. Theory behind it, that's where yeah. it yeah. And that's, and that's like that. I, I mean, I do that. That's what you're supposed to be doing. The only thing that you said that is a little bit like not supported by the literature would be the strength stuff. Okay. So because, because speech itself and the strength that's required from the lips and the tongue and stuff like that, you like, you don't usually need to exercise it. You don't need to build strength. So if you are thinking of it from that frame, it, it's not really quite accurate. But if what you're doing is just trying to get the child's articulators in the right position and trying to get them to the point where they can put their articulators in the right position themselves, then that's all good. So yeah, the reason, the reason that people will freak out if they see the chewy tube type stuff or like some of those tools 
is because of who those are sold by, right? Uh, right. So like, here's this funky thing where like, orofacial myologists historically were people that were promoting non-speech oral motor exercises, which are not evidence-based. However, in our field, there's a lot of assumption by people that therefore anything orofacial myologists do sell or say must be wrong because there was this one thing that they were wrong about historically, which is BS. Uh So you'll get people in these camps where they're like, anything that's said or done or recommended by an orofacial myologist must be bunk. And that's just because um, our field scientists and orofacial myologists do not get along at all. Oh, <laughs> so there's drama behind the scene. There, there is a lot of history and drama behind all this stuff that uh-huh. makes it really hard for clinicians to make sense of what is and isn't evidence-based once you start to approach that topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which is really frustrating to me. And I try, I actually tried to organize like a talk that I could record and put online in the clinical re- research for SLPs group on Facebook, right? Where mm-hmm. I was basically planning on gathering a few orofacial myologists who were like open-minded, kind-hearted people who would be willing to have a discussion and a handful of speech scientists who were the same, like open-minded, kind-hearted people who are willing to just have a discussion and talk about some of these things. Like, you know, what is this? What's the evidence behind this? What is this? And, you know, I couldn't get people to do it. I couldn't get people to do it because that's how political and contentious the entire situation is. And I even, I told some people at ASHA that I was trying to do it and they were like, you need to stop. Oh, so you're causing waves. Yes. (laughs) So I still think that needs to happen because what you brought up is is a topic that the majority of SLPs do not understand. And to be perfectly frank, even I don't fully understand because even though I have a lot of friends who are orofacial myologists who have kind of like introduced me to some of the things that they teach in their courses, some of which are accurate, some of which are not, like I've never actually been to the courses. You know what I mean? So like, Uh so it's hard to even really say. It's hard to even really say. Yeah. I don't feel like I'm coming from the angle of trying to increase strength, but I am coming from the angle of trying to increase use and coordination. And sometimes I use a chewy tube because I'm like, open your mouth wider. Now close it completely. And now open it wider and close it completely. And sometimes I guess you really wag your mouth that don't do anything. And I'm like, open it up. And I do feel like after, I mean, I do always put speech in there. So even if we're like biting on a chewy tube, we're going like, nah, 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 nah. We're like doing something because I want them to see their mouth as an instrument. So if I change the position of my mouth or any of my articulators, that's going to change the sound that I'm producing. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm really trying. I'm trying to increase awareness to the control the individual does have in their mouth. Yeah. And I do feel like in my own experience, it is effective, but I'm not doing anything according to like a recipe. So I, I don't know. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I I totally get where you're coming from. Like the concept behind like some kids just are unaware of like, I need to pay attention to my mouth. Yeah. Hello. There's a lot happening in here. Right. 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 Like full movements, not these like laggy little movements. Yeah. Um, but maybe it's just like I have a way of communicating it effectively because it's the way it makes sense to me. And that's yeah. why it works in my speech therapy session 
But if it doesn't make sense to somebody else, then they're not going to be able to execute it in a way that's effective for their speech therapy session. Yeah, 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 totally. And and also, you know, like sometimes there can be a little bit of a placebo effect type thing going on yeah. where like maybe you have this protocol that you're used to doing. It's not like a protocol, like, you know, follow a recipe, but like activities or strategies you're used to using at the beginning of speech sound sessions, which in and of themselves aren't necessarily directly impacting the child's speech, but maybe it kind of warms them up, not from the standpoint of warming up the muscles, because you do not need to do that, but maybe it warms them up to the idea of therapy and paying attention to you. And sometimes it gives them early success that I think can also cause a placebo effect, like in the child himself, where he's like, oh, Miss Deb is telling me to put my tongue this way, then this way, then this way, then this way. Look, I'm successful. Yeah, yeah. Oh, nailing it. Yeah. Like, look at me. And it can help kind of transition into harder activities. Right. And so I mean, some, it's just yeah. following directions and joint attention. Yeah. So I'm like, fine. I'm yeah. like, I do it. I do it. I do use it. I don't want to lie. I use it. And I, and I haven't been, there are things that I have tried and that I have not found effective and I have tossed in the garbage. But I do feel like if there's a strategy I continuously come back to. It must be for some type of reason. Even yeah. if it's just like a maintenance thing, like something that like helps them feel successful so that we can do something a little bit trickier next. Yeah. Then, yeah, exactly. Then so be it, you know? And like, I, I don't feel like clinicians should ever feel bad for trying things that maybe there's no evidence behind, but within your session, if from session to session, you're seeing that like doing that little activity interspersed with other things helps the kid, then keep freaking doing it, you know? Because for example, I have been working on my handstand for the longest time and I'm okay at it. I could do a headstand for a very long time, but for my handstand, I have really like five years and I still can't do it for very long. And then my friend came over and he was like, oh, you need to bend your elbows. So physically, I never thought to bend my elbows to have a more effective handstand. Yes. So that's kind of like how I translated over to children thinking like, well, I didn't think about this physical aspect of doing a handstand that made me more successful. So maybe they didn't think about like the effectiveness of actually elevating their tongue tip or biting down on their back teeth or things along the lines of that. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Mm -hmm. My next one that uh, I am very ashamed to admit that (laughs) I don't love parents' involvement in the speech therapy sessions. (laughs) Why? I want them to go away. (laughs) I want them to leave. Because I often feel like um, the child sees the parent as a safety net. Yeah. I don't want to toot my own horn, but I've been pretty successful with treating and eliminating a lot of speech and language issues. Yeah. So I'm not, so I don't feel like my lack of parent involvement has not been productive. I'm not, I know it is important. I understand the reasons why. But even today, I had a parent sitting down with us today, and the child just kept seeing them as a safety net, and yeah. they were kind of, like, getting really ornery about, like, participating, and, like, whiny in the sense that I have never experienced that with that child. Yeah. With one-to-one. Yeah. So, it's, so I do think, I'm not saying it's appropriate all the time, but sometimes 
it's just easier for me to work on something like so particular without any outside influence and having to like control for two people. Like controlling for one person is easiest for me. And I know it's bad. Yeah, no, I hear exactly what you're saying because if the parent doesn't exactly follow your rules and they say stuff and pipe in or even like breathe in a way that causes the child to turn around and like realize that the parent is like excited or frustrated or disappointed or, you know, nervous or whatever the case may be, it's distracting. Have you ever had a therapy room with a two-way mirror? Only in uh, college, undergrad and grad school, we had like video camera thing. Yeah. So, like the parent could watch and and the parents like I videotape the majority of my sessions I only post a minute or two like on the internet but the right. parents have like full videos and they often will record me and yeah. and I give homework and they carry that over um, yeah. so and that's all that matters is that right. like whatever's being worked on is being worked on at the highest frequency possible they don't need to be in the room with you I right. thought you'd really I like just prefer them. them not to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's fine. I don't judge you for that at all. <laughs> because then also, I don't realize, like, how particular I am in my speech therapy session and techniques until somebody else is coming in. Mm-hmm. And, like, for instance, like, I always, for the most part, I don't buy speech therapy materials. I, like, make my own. But then the majority of the things that we're working with are motivators. like. Play-Doh or water beads or a toy. I don't have, it's not like a board game or like a car, like nothing like that. So, but I never withhold something like, oh, you can't, I'm going to take Tinkerbell if you don't say this, or like, I'm only going to give you Tinkerbell if you don't, if you do this. Like, I don't like to do that because then I feel like it causes like stress and animosity towards my therapy technique and I don't want that. Yes. I feel like that's kind of instinctually how lots of people just uh like that's how they work with rules and you know if you don't eat your dinner you don't get dessert if you don't yeah this then you don't get that and I don't I don't like to work like that so when I feel like someone's trying to help me but all they're doing is like taking a toy away until the child does what I'm saying now I'm the enemy right right like that yeah when a parent pipes in and is like listen to Miss Deb or we don't get to go get ice cream after that you're like Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, now I'm the jerk who took away ice cream. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, so my last one is uh, not so much of an issue. I don't think I don't know. So there's tons of therapy. There's tons of evidence for play-based therapy. Uh-huh. And um, I want to say, like when I was a CF, I really struggled to just play. I felt like I was just a old tired person who wrote too many papers and just lost all sense of like play and imagination and I wasn't good at it uh-huh. and I stopped putting the demands on play so I am and I also decided like I don't have to always play but I can always be playful yes so what I like to do is combine a drill play approach. That's how I like to do speech therapy. So I'll be silly and I'll play with words, but I really don't like having a sensory bin and digging out toys and spending 20 minutes labeling 10 toys. I don't, I want to have like 50 productions of something. So I'd rather do a drill and then put something on my head or like say a funny noise or show them an alligator that might bite or something like 
that, like I can, I want to be playful rather than make the activity a game. Yeah. Oh, I, I 1000% agree with you. Like (laughs) hands down because you've got to get, you've got to get the therapy dose as high as possible. So it's like the activities that you've planned are too involved where they're a game in and of themselves or they're an activity in and of themselves. It's going to end up taking away time from the actual targets you're working on and reduce your dose. The, The best therapist, which, you know, this is, this is hard because it's hard to be this person sometimes, but the best therapists are the ones who don't use a ton of stuff, but like themselves, like their interaction with the child is the part of the therapy that's rewarding. Like if you can make yourself the person or the thing that the child wants to play with, not the like objects that you bring with you, then you'll have so much more control over the therapy, right? Right. That's what yeah. I always try to tell my CFs. I've had so far um, two, three, five, seven CFs so far. Mm-hmm. And um, what I would always like, I'm very easygoing as a, as a supervisor, but the only thing I really don't like is like too much lag time. I want those yeah. transitions to be useful. I want the activity to be useful. Like yeah. don't take a board game out and spend that much time like setting it up deciding who goes first that drives mm-hmm. me insane and I yeah. feel like it's just a tremendous waste of time but lots of people here like well play-based therapy is the most effective therapy but I'm like you just be crazy just be like a big yeah show. yeah, yeah. And the kids will always want your attention yeah that's hard I think for students to do in front of a supervisor Right. Like when I was a student, there's, I don't think that I could be that person if another adult was watching me, like I would be so nervous, but I could do it when I was by myself with the kids. You know what I mean? And I could do it when my principal was watching me after I had several years under my belt and didn't feel like a dork anymore, but felt comfortable with it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But then also the kids act totally weird when somebody new comes to watch you, I feel like. It's yeah. even harder to be anything because the kids are like, who is that over there? Like, why are they here? And why? Yeah. Are there certain toys? So like speaking of that concept, I, um, there's certain like toys and activities that I historically have bought for my therapy room that I realized I couldn't do therapy with because they ended up taking like too, they, they were too distracting for the child or because of the like withholding thing I would have to do. Like what you mentioned earlier about like, do this and then you'll get to have Tinkerbell. Like I hate that withholding stuff too. One of them was, you know, those um, tall car ramps that kids around like age, like you may maybe like three to seven like to play with where you put a car at the top and it like swirls down the ramp. Yeah. That was something that was like a hot ticket item in my therapy room for a long time, but I could only ever figure out how to use it as a reward where it's like, we're going to do this then you can play with the car ramp for two minutes because anytime I tried to integrate it into therapy, I was always like the jerk withholding something, right? Where like the kid has the car at the top and I'm like using my hand to block the car from going down and I'm like, say go, you know, and I'm not going to pull my hand back until they say go. Like, have you found any toys like that in your therapy room where like, you're like, I can't use this in the way I want to because it decreases my ability to actually get the targets out of the kid. <laughs> yeah, all of them pretty much. I don't <laughs> use like the only toys that I use and also so like because we both are agreeing that we hate that like withdrawal thing. What I like to do is I if I'm playing with a toy, then I make sure that my toy has several pieces. 
so that the child wants to continue working so that they can make their tower bigger or they can complete potato head or the puzzle will be complete. So I'll often like have a, a page of like minimal pairs or one of my coloring sheets and I'll use the toy that they're working for, which will all be a Lego or like a puzzle piece or something like that. And I'll be like, tell me by bite, bad, bad, win, win. Like, and I'm doing that. And then once they finish that, they get that piece. Um, and I try to pair it with an activity that they feel successful in so that they can keep going. Because mm -hmm. once you chat, once I challenge them too much, they'll become satisfied with what they have in their hands currently. Yeah, yeah. They won't want more. So they'll right. be like, well, I don't care about more Play-Doh because I do have a ball here and, and that sounds too hard. So I don't want to keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So then I'll put it on my head and then I'll be like, oh, let me hear you do it. Just do it silly and something like that. And then yeah. I'll get them. Yeah, because you're turning yourself into the reward. Like that's the thing that always would work best for me is if I thought of, myself and my own and like my interaction with the child is the thing that they're working for like if they're working for like continued interaction and play with you then the objects become a non-issue you know right because I have never found it effective to leave a child to their own devices to in find enjoyment in a toy of any sort so there is no maybe coloring pages my coloring pages I can leave them and they can just color them but the point is to talk about them when you're coloring them yeah but um yeah there's nothing I can be like just do this game on the iPad because they still want to click out and look at everything else you have to offer on that iPad yeah. and they'll get bored of an activity if I'm not doing it with them so or then you end up stuck and you're like I guess I'm doing modeling and auditory bombardment now because I'm just talking and this kid's not paying attention to me right Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So I feel better about all the things that I have been doing, breaking the rules about and like doing wrong. Um, before <laughs> we conclude, is there anything like, like if you were like, if anything, this is what I want all SLPs to just keep in mind or to know or to not let go of or to revert back to. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the, the one thing is, Knowing the research is frustrating because it's extremely time consuming. It can get expensive. Like we said, a lot of it isn't yet ready for clinical application. It's too theoretical or the technology they're working on just doesn't exist. But that being said, our field scientists are all working together to try to advance our clinical practice as best and as fast as they possibly can. And science just plain takes a while. But the most important thing is that even though it can be frustrating that you never abandon it. Like you should never be that person where you're like, I haven't looked at a single journal article in 15 years, <laughs> you know, because that would be, that could be a bad sign that you're perhaps like not staying up to date because I know it's excruciating. I know it's tedious, but there's a lot of research out there that, you know, every SLP should know now because it would change their practice dramatically. And it's hard to find those things, which is why the informed SLP is working to find those things for you guys. But even just when a colleague recommends it and says like, oh, this paper about, you know, like treatment of apraxia is really good. Don't just look at it and be like, I remember what grad school is like, was like, and I'm not going to look at that paper because it's going to be horrible, awful, and boring. Like you have to just push yourself even just a tiny bit and, you know, and if it's too hard, just sign up for with the informed SLP and 
your yeah. life is easier. So if you really yeah. feel like you're dragging your feet or you got this mental block because you were traumatized by grad school, then Meredith is the gal for you. Everybody was traumatized by grad school. It doesn't yeah. mean you don't like science. It means that you still have to learn how to like it or love it. Maybe just to learn right. with somebody else. <laughs> yeah, I didn't ever feel like the coursework in grad school was too hard, but the lifestyle was entirely too hard. That I was exhausted. I was just, I was like, I don't even know how to describe. I, I don't even have a word for what it was. I was drained. That's, that's a whole other podcast episode that um, you should do some point in time is um, grad school. Mm -hmm. Like what makes it hard? What does everybody have in common? All right, writing that down. Grad school. What makes it hard? <laughs> yeah, what makes it hard? What, what parts of it are hard for everybody? And also like there's some parts of it that just plain need fixed, you know? Um, but you could, in, you could invite SLPs and like faculty members. I could let you know faculty members who actually would be willing to discuss like the parts of grad school that can't be changed versus the parts of grad school that maybe should be changed. Cause I think that's important too. You know, like when you have people that actually understand like which parts of it are and aren't malleable, um, we can better advocate for ourselves as, you know, clinicians and grad students. In terms yeah, of I, that's a great idea. I, uh, I would totally want to do that. I would say personally, I'm, I'm, um, beyond envious. I'm like green with envy, jealous and a little bit mad. Um, when I see graduate students who get to do fees and scopes and stuff, cause I never got that opportunity. So I like, am jealous of all of you out there who do, and please take advantage of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then before we end, do you can, do you have anything to plug? Where can they find you on the internet and, um, any yeah. of that? So um, theinformedslp.com, and that'll link you to um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. I would say right now we're most active on Instagram because it seems to be the most efficient way to get information to SLPs. Um, and our handle on there is just at theinformedslp. All right. Well, thank you so much, Meredith. Yeah, good chatting with you. Will I get to see you in person? Are you going to any conferences this year? I will be at ASHA in Orlando. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> All right, talk more soon.